0: Alright, good morning. We have a lot of material to get through this morning, so I want to begin as promptly as possible and get jumped right in. Scott, would you mind pulling those doors or maybe somebody else is going to? Thank you very much. Lots of material this morning. I hope you have your Bible this morning. We're going to be doing a little bit more um, exegetical work, so I hope you're ready to turn to some passages with me. Let's pray and we'll begin our discussion of eschatology, focusing this morning Drilling in a little bit more deeply into the Millennial Kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have. The hope of your return, the hope of restoration, the hope of a glorious kingdom in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, I pray that you'd give us understanding this morning as we look into your word. Give us a sharp mind um, and give us an eagerness to study and to know and to love your truth and to grasp everything that you have given us to understand. Um, So give us humility, uh, a teachable spirit, and wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so two weeks ago, um, we began looking at some of the events of eschatology surrounding the return of Christ. We talked about the return of Christ being physical, being uh, visible, being personal, and how no one knows the exact day or time. So don't listen to Harold Camping or any other goofballs who try to do some funky math and then tell you they know the date of when Jesus is coming back, because they don't. Um, But we talked a little bit about the relationship of Jesus' return to a future kingdom, and how kingdom is a key theme from Genesis to Revelation. You can trace the importance of kingdom, and you can see a prototypical kingdom in the Garden of Eden, uh, a further development of that kingdom in the nation of Israel, and even see how Israel as a nation develops from having judges to having kings. Then you also see things unraveling. And you see a promise and an expectation of a future kingdom all throughout the prophets and then Jesus comes, John the Baptist comes, and they're preaching about the kingdom of God. Then we get to Revelation and we see specific language about this kingdom. So let's talk a little bit about the kingdom. I mentioned last week that there are uh, three primary views on what's referred to as the millennial kingdom. The word millennial just comes from the word uh, thousand, and in Revelation 20 we see Multiple repetitions of this period of a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. So what is this millennial kingdom? Well, there's three different views. The amillennial view uh, would understand that today we're in the church age, and the next thing on the eschatological calendar would be the return of Christ, and following the return of Christ, judgment, resurrection, a whole constellation of events take place around the return of Christ and then they would teach that we enter into the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth, where there's no further developments or changes. Everything is as it's going to be forever, except we increase in our enjoyment of it and our worship of Christ and our delight in who he is. That is changing. But that would be the amillennial view because they don't see any future physical kingdom that is distinct from this age, but not yet uh, the new heaven, the new earth. They would hold that the kingdom promises are either fulfilled now spiritually in the church or they're fulfilled now, um, in a sense, in heaven. So they don't believe in a millennium to speak of. It's the ah-millennial, no millennium view. The post-millennial view holds that in the, the church age, which we're in now, is going to gradually experience greater, greater increasing success in the spread of the gospel So that the world is gradually Christianized and there is a kingdom that is established through the work of the church, through the ministry of the church. Um, And that at the end of this kingdom period, at the end of this golden era in which all Christ's enemies have been brought under his feet and in which everyone and everything by and large is being uh, ruled and governed by the law of God, they would hold that after this golden age, Christ will personally return. There will be judgment, resurrections, other such things And then we enter into the eternal state. Um, We shared various reasons why we're not convinced that either of these two views, the amillennial view or the postmillennial view, is the best way to understand Scripture. Though we respect our brothers and sisters who would read the Bible this way. It's not heresy. It's not false teaching. We just think it's an inferior interpretation. um, And we're not convinced of it. So we at this church would teach the premillennial view. Pre, meaning that we believe Jesus returns pre, before the millennial kingdom. So the church age would be followed by the return of Christ and when Christ returns he will establish a kingdom. It's a kingdom that's physical. It's a kingdom that's universal. All his enemies are brought under his feet and he rules with his resurrected saints for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years there's a number of events that take place uh, which is followed by um, judgment and then we enter into the eternal state where the elements are melted with fervent heat and all things are remade and we enter into this uh, new heaven and new earth, that would be the eternal state. So that's the premillennial view. And we ran out of time two weeks ago. So what we're going to do today is drill a little bit deeper into five reasons why we teach that the premillennial view, premill for short, if you're taking notes, you don't have to write out millennial every time, five reasons why we think the premill view uh, is the best view. Um, and the first would be the intermediate nature of the kingdom. We see teaching throughout the Bible that describes a period of time, that describes a kingdom reality, which doesn't fit now, unless you bend and twist a whole bunch of things. But it also doesn't fit the eternal state. I'm just going to show you a few of those. This is not exhaustive. In Isaiah 65, 20 says, This is prophecy. Uh, no more shall there be in it, in this kingdom. And An infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So we have to ask is this referring to something in this current age? Do we have anything like an infant who lives but a few days? It's sadly all too common. People in this church have experienced that. Um, But there's a prophecy that says that will be something that is such a rarity, it's, it's unheard of. It's unthinkable to think that an infant would only live a few days. Or to think of an old man who does not fill out his days. Too many of us know people whose lives were tragically cut short when they were not old. And it says that the young man shall die 100 years old. In this day and age, someone who dies at 100, everyone will go, wow, they were taken too soon. That was a life tragically cut short. 100 years old will be considered a brief lifespan. It says a sinner 100 years old shall be accursed. That uh, someone who dies at 100 is likely related to God's judgment in taking their life. Now this seems very unlike this age. Um, this does not describe the current day and age we live in. But this is also unlike the eternal state because Isaiah 65 describes a time in which death and sin are still present. And we know that in the new heaven and the new earth, death is no more. And sin has been abolished. So Passages like this don't seem to describe the current age. They don't seem to describe the eternal state. It seems reasonable to say this is describing a unique intermediate kingdom, a different period of time where things have drastically changed and improved, but they're not yet perfected. Uh, Another passage, Zechariah 14.4. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. This is referring to the return of their Messiah, the return of Christ. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward, the other half southward. Verse 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. What we have described here is drastic geographical changes. That's very unlike this age. Uh, But this is also describing a period of time... um, That is not yet the eternal state. We know that the earth itself is going to be melted down. Uh, The Mount of Olives is going to be dissolved, not just divided in half. Um, And and also, still we see, um, we also see a universal reign of Jesus Christ that doesn't seem to describe what's happening today. There's many who live in open rebellion to Christ. Uh, He is not exercising his kingship over all the earth. So passages like this describe drastic geological changes, drastic political changes, Later on in this same chapter, uh, Zechariah 4 says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain." There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So this describes a time period of universal worship where all the nations worship Christ. That's definitely not today. But it can't be the eternal state because there's still judgment promised for rebels. So this is an authoritative rule of Jesus But it's not yet the eternal state where everyone is glorified and everyone is redeemed and there's no death, there's no sin, just pure worship. So this seems to describe a different age altogether. Um, Isaiah 11, we could keep going, I'm just going to run through this very quickly, Um, speaks of Jesus, verse 3, that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his eyes hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So it describes Jesus ruling, judging, pronouncing judgment on all different types of people um, in terms of resolving disputes and settling matters. It says, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Um, It says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. So there's drastic changes um, in terms of the Prince of Peace reigning on earth. Imagine how much peace we would have if Jesus solved all of our disputes. Should we wear masks or not? Let's ask Jesus. Should we pay taxes or not? Let's ask Jesus. Um, how should we solve poverty? Let's ask Jesus. That would probably change a lot of things if Jesus decided all of our disputes, all the things that we tend to disagree about on a regular basis. And then look at the drastic change to the animal kingdom, verse 6 the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Not eat the lamb, dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. This seems to be a reversal to the conditions of Eden before the fall. Where there wasn't death. There wasn't tooth and claw red with blood. There was peace and harmony among the animal kingdom. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This seems to describe a future age in which there's drastic changes. This isn't being fulfilled today unless you really spiritualize and allegorize some things but it also doesn't seem to describe the eternal state because you have Jesus judging and settling disputes and even destroying the wicked. So this seems to be describing a future time. Uh, Revelation 2, 26 through 27 says, the one who conquers and keeps my works unto the end, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Um, if you don't believe in a future physical kingdom, then you have to say, in some sense, this is a reality today, that somehow saints, believing saints who have, who have died already, are ruling with a rod of iron over the nations. That doesn't describe our day and age today. Uh, But it also cannot be the eternal state because there's not going to be any dominion over enemies in the eternal state. The enemies have already been banished. So this promise in Revelation 2 seems to be a promise that's fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, a future intermediary kingdom, different from this age, but not yet the eternal state. And we believe that that happens when Christ returns. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, again, uh, describes Jesus returning, describes resurrection. It describes every rule and authority and power Uh, being given to God by Christ after he puts them all under his feet. So as Jesus reigns over this kingdom, eventually this kingdom itself is offered to the Father. Um, And we could go on and on with more examples, but that's the first reason why we think that the premillennial view is the best. There's all of these passages that cause a lot of tension if you don't hold to the premillennial view. If you hold to a premillennial view, it's very easy to explain them all. We don't have to have to twist or force or kind of squint our eyes or redefine anything. We can just let all those passages mean exactly what they say if we hold to a future millennial kingdom. A second reason is the chronology of Revelation 19 through 20. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to Revelation 19 and 20. There are six times... Um, in this sequence of verses, Revelation 19 and 20, um, where we see language of chronology. Then I saw, then I saw, and I saw, then. We see repetitions of these kinds of words from the Apostle John, which seems to describe sequential language. And you say, well, why is this important? That's how I've read it. Um, Those who do not hold to a premillennial view believe that the scene we find at the end of chapter 19, you might have it under a summary heading in your, in your Bible as the return of Christ, the rider on a white horse. We have this description in verses 11 through 21 where John sees heaven opened, he sees a white horse, one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then we have this really shocking description of Jesus Christ. Eyes like flame of fire a head with many crowns, a name written that no one knows but himself, a robe dipped in blood. And then he comes in verse 14 with the armies of heaven. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword uh, with which he will strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. That's kingdom language. That ruling with a rod of iron connects all of those kingdom passages. And then you see uh, in verse 17 through 21, there's a great battle. Uh, The armies of the earth are gathered together by the beast and the false prophet, And then they are slain, and there's a judgment at the end of this, where the beast and false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and all the birds of the earth are gorged with their flesh of this defeated army. So this is like the the big-time hammer drop at the end of Revelation. All these different things have been happening. There's different plagues and great tribulation and all of these um, cosmic and earthly things going on. at the end of it, Jesus shows up, and he puts his foot down, and there's this climactic battle. Then in chapter 20, um, we see language, again, describing another battle. In verse 7, it says, When the thousand years of this kingdom are ended, Satan is released from his prison, and he comes out to deceive the nations. We see that these nations march up in verse 9 um, to attack the saints in the camp of the beloved city. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes them. Verse 10, the devil who had deceived them is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were, where they're tormented day and night forever and ever. So we have two different battle scenes. Two different battle scenes where there's armies, there's judgment, and there's victory. And those who believe that um, there's not a future physical kingdom, they say that the battle in chapter 20 and the battle in chapter 19 are the same battle. And what you're getting is two different camera angles. They would call it recapitulation. It's a replay. It's going back over and taking another pass to describe the same event. And the reason they do that is because in between these two battles, we have a description of this thousand-year kingdom. Chapter 20, verses 1 uh, through 6 describes this kingdom. Now, if this kingdom is future, as we believe it is, this makes very simple sense. Jesus returns. There's a climactic battle. He establishes his kingdom. At the end of this kingdom, there's another battle where Satan is released, and there's a final conflict. We just read it sequentially. We read it as chronological history, as things that happen one after the other. But if you think this kingdom um, comes before the return of Christ, before the events of chapter 19, then you have to play around with the timing. You have to move things around. If you think that this kingdom is not physical or literal, that it's just a spiritual reality fulfilled now in the church, well, then we've got to play around with the timing and, and kind of shuffle some things around. But I'm convinced that Revelation 19 and 20 are chronological. There's the language of sequence that we see over and over again, the language of time, speaking of a 1,000 years, when the 1,000 years are ended, after that, for a little while. We see all these phrases, chapter 19 and 20. So I believe this is chronological, not a replay or a recap of the same event. And then finally, I would say this, similarity between two passages, similarity does not equal sameness. That's a really important principle as you study your Bibles, Similarity is important to notice. It's an important feature for us to look for. But similarity is not sameness. Though there are similar details in chapter 19 and 20, I think the differences are too great for them to be referring to the same event. Let's just look at some of those. We do acknowledge there are similarities. In verse 7 of chapter 19, we see an angel. Actually, it's not verse 7. Um... I wrote that down wrong. Verse 17, that's what it is. John writes, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Chapter 20, we see an angel as well in verse 1, that there's an angel coming down from heaven who holds in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Uh, We see the saints in in verse 14 of chapter 19. I believe that the saints are what's referred to as the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, Uh, Other places in Revelation, we find the saints being arrayed in fine linen. It's the robes of righteousness that Christ gives us. So we see the saints there in chapter 19. We also see the saints in verse 9 of chapter 20. We see the camp of the saints that are being marched against uh, by this army. We see the gathering of armies in, in 19 verse 19. The gathering of armies in verse 8 of chapter 20. We see the sequence of battle, victory, and then punishment ending with the lake of fire, battle, victory, and then punishment, ending with the lake of fire. So there are similarities between these two battles, these two scenes. So we're not saying that people who read it as recapitulation are crazy, that they're making something up. No, there's reasons for that. But I don't think the similarities equal sameness. Let's look at the differences. In chapter 19, we see that the angel is standing in the sun. In chapter 20, we see the angel is coming down. So these angels are engaged in different activities. In chapter 19, we see that the saints are coming with Christ from heaven, verse 14. But in chapter 20, we see that the saints are encamped in the holy city, in verse 9. So the saints are in different locations in these two scenes. We see that it is the beast gathering armies in chapter 19, verse 19. But it is Satan gathering armies in chapter 20, verse 8. Uh, And the beast in Revelation often refers to the Antichrist. He's a human figure. He's not Satan. Um, In chapter 19, verse 21, we see that the victory is secured by the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus. He slays them with his word. In chapter 20, verse 9, we see that divine judgment comes in the form of fire from heaven. So if Jesus is reigning from the earth on the throne of David in Jerusalem, but the fire comes from heaven, this seems to be a different source of judgment. A different source of power for the victory that secures the battle. And then finally, in chapter 19, we see that the beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire. And then look in chapter 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, look at this, where the beast and the false prophet were. They were already there. Because they had already lost a battle a thousand years earlier. It says, and they, all three of them, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I think that the differences outweigh the similarities. And that it's very difficult to say that the events of chapter 19 are the same as the events of chapter 20. I think it's best to read this straight through as a sequence of events that are actually different. And if that's the case, then what we find is that after Jesus returns in chapter 19... There is a kingdom that is established. We see multiple references to this thousand-year kingdom in chapter 20. Um, And then at the end of this millennial kingdom, Satan is released. There's a great battle. And then we have a final judgment, which leads to a new heaven and a new earth. If we read it that way, then we find ourselves being in the premillennial camp. Um, And I think that's the best way to read these two chapters. And you can dig into that more carefully. Just do that on your own. Take a piece of paper, get out a pencil, read your Bible, write down in one column the similarities you see, write down in another column the differences you see, and ask yourself, uh, what markers of time or sequence do I see? Little words like then or after or time measurements. And then you make the decision for yourself what you think is the best interpretation. There's a third reason why I'm convinced of the premillennial view, and that would be the binding of Satan. Um, Again, chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Actually, I think I have this on the slide there. There we go. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, if you take the amillennial view, you say that the kingdom is now, which means that this has to be a present reality. If the kingdom is now, it means Satan has been, to use the language of Revelation 20, seized, bound, thrown into a pit, the pit shut, sealed, and that Satan is not allowed right now to deceive the nations. That has to be a present reality if the kingdom is now. Um, But this doesn't seem to fit. Just a number of other places in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Historically, people have tried to fit these verses together by saying, Well, he's bound with a really long chain. He's like a a dog or a, a lion that, he's on a chain, but if you're in his yard, he can still reach you. And that just seems to take away any significance from Revelation 20. 2 Corinthians 4 describes the activity of Satan in this age, that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That doesn't seem to fit with what chapter 20 of Revelation says, that he's not allowed to deceive the nations. Ephesians 6.11 uh, tells us to be on guard, to stand against the schemes of the devil. He seems pretty active, not bound, thrown in a pit with the pit sealed and shut over him. First uh, John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It doesn't seem that he's being limited in the sense that Revelation 20 says he's limited. So as Bill Mounts, who's a New Testament Greek scholar, has said, I'll quote him here, the elaborate measures taken to ensure Satan's custody are most easily understood as implying the complete cessation of his influence on the earth rather than just a curbing of his activities. Um, so the binding of Satan, I believe, indicates the millennial kingdom is a future event following the return of Christ, that it's not a present reality. Um, I thought I had some other verses in here. You might say, well then, how can they say that Satan is in any sense bound? There are a few verses that talk about Christ's victory over Satan. Uh, Colossians 2 talks about how God has put Satan to open shame by triumphing over him through Christ, through the cross. So there is victory over Satan in this age. Um, Jesus uh, teaches in the Gospels when he's casting out demons, he says, well, first you have to bind a strong man before you plunder his house. And he says, if Satan is cast- if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, well, his kingdom won't stand. But if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. So I think Jesus is not inaugurating and starting a kingdom by doing that. I think he's giving an example of, when I show up, here's the kinds of things that happen. Demonic, satanic activity is absolutely driven out and so think about that if Jesus did that in his earthly ministry casting out demons what will it look like when he personally returns in glory it's going to result in the binding of Satan completely eradicating his activities Um, so we, we do acknowledge there are some passages in the New Testament that speak to Christ's victory we just don't think that Satan is bound in the sense that Revelation 20 says he is right now There's a fourth reason why we hold to a premillennial view, and that is the language of resurrection in chapter 20 of Revelation. Look in verse 4. John writes, speaking, this is after the return of Christ, and this is entering into this thousand-year period. He says, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life... There's resurrection language. And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we have to ask, is this a present reality or a future reality? It says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So Revelation 20 describes this kingdom as being bracketed by two resurrections. There's first a resurrection of saints with Christ in verse 4, and then there's a second resurrection of what John calls the rest after the millennial kingdom. We see that in verse 5. So the first resurrection for the saints, it says that they reign with Christ for a thousand years. The second resurrection are those that are going to experience the second death. They're resurrected for judgment, not to reign with Christ. So the, the resurrection, we have to ask, what does this mean? Well, if the kingdom is now, like amillennialists claim, let's just step in their shoes for a moment. If the kingdom of this millennial kingdom is a current spiritual reality, then this must have already happened. This resurrection of saints to reign with Christ must be a present reality. They must be reigning with Christ from heaven now. And so to resolve this. Those who would say that the kingdom is now in a spiritual or heavenly sense, they have to define this resurrection as a spiritual resurrection, as simply a metaphor for salvation. So they would read this and say, these saints who came to life, this is describing their salvation. This is them being born again. This is being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. But there's a few problems with that view. There's a few problems with reading this first resurrection as a spiritual resurrection instead of a physical resurrection. Um... Obviously, there's not physically resurrected saints running around today. Um, So they're saying it has to be spiritual. But listen, the resurrection, according to verse 4, is for saints who are martyred, according to verse 4. Look in verse 4. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. This is resurrection for saints who are martyred. It's not a description of sinners coming to saving faith in Christ. It's a different thing. Secondly, the Greek word for resurrection, anastasis, occurs about 38 times in the New Testament. And in every other case, it always refers to physical resurrection. The language of new life is used to describe salvation. This word for resurrection is never used anywhere else in scripture to describe being spiritually born again. Now that doesn't automatically mean it couldn't be here. But it puts us on thin ice. We'd have to have very strong evidence that it means something that it never means in other passages. And I just think we're lacking that evidence. And then third, I just don't think it's consistent. Because those who take this view, they take the first resurrection as spiritual. But they take the second resurrection as physical. But I think that's inconsistent. If resurrection means salvation, not physical resurrection then I think it should mean that for the second group as well. But that would lead us to universalism, wouldn't it? If the rest, those who didn't believe, are brought to life after a thousand years in the same way that the first group is brought to life, then it would mean they are saved too. But that leads to universalism. It's clear that this second group is not saved because they experienced the second death in the lake of fire. A consistent interpretation is going to say, That these resurrections are either both spiritual or they're both physical. It's arbitrary to say one is spiritual and one is physical just because it fits your scheme. I just think we need to let the text take its most simple, natural, straightforward reading. And I think the best way to read this is to understand both of these resurrections as physical. And if these resurrections are physical, then it means this is a future reality. It's not something descriptive of our current age. So that's why I'm not convinced by another reason I'm not convinced of the amillennial view and then finally taking the pre-millennial view allows for the fulfillment of prophecy and we could go through dozens and dozens of bible verses this morning and talk about various prophecies that are fulfilled but I want to sort of group them together under a couple headings and help us understand that the prophecies fulfilled in the millennial kingdom These are not just a bunch of sort of random disconnected prophecies, a bunch of one-offs. It's actually the resolution of major covenantal promises. Think about that. God's covenantal promises from beginning to end, many of them are brought to increasing fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. Jesus is not done bringing every promise of God to completion. Jesus fulfilled a ton of promises literally in his first coming. He's also going to fulfill a whole bunch of promises, literally, in his second coming. We can group these under several headings. Think about the Abrahamic covenant. There's all these promises bundled together under the heading of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 15, 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Um, He gives some actual borders for the promised land. And at no point did Israel ever possess all of this. Not during uh, the conquest of Joshua, not even during David and Solomon's era, when the kingdom of Israel reached its greatest expanse. They never fully possessed all of this. So do we think that God just fell short a little bit in what he was saying? No, we think there's actually still a future fulfillment for the Abrahamic covenant, an aspect of it that still remains not yet complete, and Jesus is going to bring that to completion. Genesis seventeen seven, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, get this, for an everlasting covenant. <clears throat> God's not done. <clears throat> An everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. There are still Abrahamic covenant promises that have not yet been completely fulfilled. They've been partially fulfilled. And we even participate in some of that blessing in the new covenant today. But there's still aspects of it that are future. Think about the Davidic covenant. In Second Samuel 7, God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. <clears throat> Verse 16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that's key. Many people who say that the kingdom is now say that Christ's current session at the right hand of the Father fulfills the Davidic covenant. But currently, Jesus sits at the right hand of his Father. That's God's throne. David doesn't own that throne. It's not his. But God promises that one day that the offspring of David, Jesus Christ the Messiah, will be seated on David's throne, that that throne will be established. Psalm eighty-nine thirty-four says, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. So I think that there's Abrahamic covenant promises that are yet to be fulfilled. There's also Davidic covenant promises that are yet to be fulfilled. We see this in Isaiah 9 as well, the familiar passage we sing at Christmas. And it says, speaking of the Messiah, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there is an aspect of the Davidic covenant must be fulfilled and I I almost threw in a fourth one I'll just put it in as a subcategory of this think about this as well think about Jesus being the second Adam Adam was supposed to be a prototypical kind of a king who exercised dominion and expressed God's authority in the world and over the world but Adam failed there must be a human king who reigns in the realm where Adam failed to be what Adam was supposed to be otherwise God's purposes have been thwarted so I think this is an earthly uh, reality, <clears throat> uh, the Davidic covenant being fulfilled. But there's also new covenant promises that have yet to be completely fulfilled. The new covenant promises. Um, one covenant we haven't touched on here would be the Mosaic covenant. God gives, his, God gives his law to Israel. But that covenant was temporary. That old covenant was a placeholder that is eventually going to be replaced and has been replaced by the new covenant in Christ. And the new covenant promises include two Primary things. Number one, a spiritual restoration. God says, I'm going to do for you what the law couldn't do. I'm going to write my law in your heart. I'm going to work in your heart, give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit in you. There's a spiritual restoration that is promised to Israel. If you read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and other passages in the prophets where we find these new covenant promises, you have to note that there's like 30 chapters that come before that that deal with all of this cursing and judgment. Israel experienced cursing and judgment, cursing and judgment because of their sin, their apostasy. But the good news was that God was going to bring a spiritual restoration. They experienced a literal cursing and judgment. They're also going to experience a literal spiritual restoration. Uh, These blessings of spiritual restoration have not yet happened for Israel. But they are being extended beyond the borders of Israel to believing Gentiles today. We get to participate in the blessings in the new covenant through faith in Christ. But it's not just a spiritual restoration for Israel. If you read those new covenant passages, there's also a national physical aspect to their restoration. A restoration of their land, of peace and prosperity, of victory over their enemies. These things are included in the new covenant promises. So, if the promised judgment was literally fulfilled, we should expect the promised restoration to also be literally fulfilled. Jeremiah thirty-one: <clears throat> "Behold, the days are coming," declares the Lord, "when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah." He says in verse thirty-three, "I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts." There's spiritual restoration. Um, if you look down in verse thirty-four. says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. He says, there's not going to be evangelism anymore. Really? Why? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is a massive, comprehensive revival for the people of Israel. Great spiritual blessings. He says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. That's a very rhetorically powerful way of saying it's not going to happen. God's not going to fail to fulfill this promise, to redeem his people, to restore them in a spiritual sense. So this national repentance and faith has not yet happened. This is describing a future society that worships God in totality. And it's the same people. It's the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The same people that experience the judgments are also going to experience this blessing. So we wouldn't just re-describe Israel to say, well, it's the church today. We didn't experience those judgments. Israel did. Now we get to share in the blessings. That's this amazing mystery revealed in the New Testament that Jesus is going to do more than this, but he won't do less. He won't do less. In Ezekiel 36, the other primary New Covenant passage, uh, we see this promise of gathering his people, bringing them back into their land, verse 24, sprinkling clean water on them, cleansing them. He says, verse 26, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's spiritual restoration. But you can't separate this spiritual restoration from the physical national restoration. Verse 28 says, without even skipping a beat, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways, your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. So God is describing here a time of repentance and restoration, not just spiritual restoration, but physical restoration, You see, they lost the land and they experienced great suffering, famine, uh, suffering, cursing. and and, And God says, I'm going to undo all of that. I'm going to bring you back into the land and I'm going to bless you physically and spiritually. So has this happened yet? No. You can look at the modern nation of Israel. They're not spiritually restored. They're not even really nationally or physically restored anywhere like what we see in Scripture. So that has very little to do with, with the promises of the Bible. This is something that can only take place when Jesus returns, when he restores Israel, when he establishes them in the land, when he fulfills all of God's promises. We all love to talk about how all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. That it's all fulfilled through Christ. Not not just the cross, it's also the throne. Jesus gets the crown of thorns, he also gets the crown of Glory. And it's through both of those acts that he brings all of God's promises to completion. He finishes what he started. So that's five reasons why we hold the premillennial view. I think it is the best explanation for the intermediate nature that we see in all these kingdom promises. It best explains the chronology of Revelation 19 through 20. I think it's the simplest, clearest understanding of the binding of Satan in Revelation 20. It makes for the most natural reading of the two resurrections we see in Revelation 20. And it allows for Christ to fulfill in completion all the promises of God we find in the Old Testament. His covenant purposes that are seen in his promises to Abraham, to David, and in the New Covenant. So because of all of these factors, we teach a future physical kingdom that follows the return of of christ so i hope that has not raised too many questions i hope it's answered some and made it clear for you and again if you have questions write them down we'll do A Q&A here uh, in the near future we'd love to hear those questions but we've got about 15 minutes till uh, corporate worship you guys are dismissed we'll see you back here in a few actually one more point i want to make before you go hold that thought i forgot i had one more slide <clears throat> and this is one of my favorite new testament passages real quick Jesus is talking to the disciples right before he ascends into heaven. And they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a great question. Are you going to do it now? Are you going to do all that promised stuff now? And you know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, You guys didn't get it. It's a spiritual kingdom. That's not how he answers. He says to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority. He says, You have the right expectation that the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel but not yet. Right now, what I want you to do is go share the gospel. So, one more verse. Sorry, just had to do that. We'll see you back here in a few minutes.